hello and welcome. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the podcast series. This broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Noah Shankman, who is the John Kluge Professor of Urology at University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. Today, we'll be discussing biopsy of the renal mass, why, when, and what to do with the results. Well, Noah, welcome, and we really appreciate your generous time, and we uh, thank you for your expertise in this field, and we look forward to talking to you. Well, thank you very much for, for having me and for inviting me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about our experience at the University of Virginia. Um, our, you know, our approach to renal masses uh, has changed over the last 10 years, but, uh, you know, it's it just that we're seeing such a, a huge incidence of uh, incidentally noted renal masses on CT scan. Uh, so, uh, you know, we we tend to work, uh, try to a patient education model, you know, shared decision-making uh, and trying to get as much information to the patient as possible. And that's influenced our, our uh, decision on when to biopsy renal masses. So um, in our, in our practice, uh, there's about four or five uh, urologists that all work on a small renal mass. And uh, we have a, a separate tumor board once a month set aside just for small renal mass, uh, where we work with a pathologist, a radiologist, and uh, several urologists uh, just come into some shared decisions that we can we can give choices to the patients. So it's been a really great experience. We have terrific experience, uh, relationships with uh, with our colleagues in radiology that's made it all possible. And uh, you know what I'm going to talk about is a lot of the UVA experience. Uh, hopefully it'll uh, it'll carry over to uh, other people's practices. So uh, we definitely have bias towards our you know academic practice with a lot of residents here uh, and uh, we tend to do uh, do a lot of things uh, maybe a little more uh, it's a little more drawn out <laughs> than you might in, pro in community practice. Um, the uh, we tend to biopsy a lot of our our patients, and uh, we came to that conclusion about uh, maybe five seven years ago uh, that we really needed to change our paradigm. I know uh, nationally, biopsy is still not uh, well accepted. I think as many papers will be in the ten to fifteen percent uh, for uh, patients who get biopsied before. Our renal masses, and that varies wildly depending on uh, local practices. So some practices, especially the academic places, may have very high biopsy rates. Uh, and I traditionally, I urologists have said, "Well, a biopsy is not going to change my uh, approach. Uh, I'm still going to do what I'm going to do." Uh, others have cited uh, potential complications from biopsy, uh, but you know, if we look at the paradigm and compare it to all other solid tumors, you know, most other disciplines biopsy uh, solid masses before treating them. And, uh, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, when we weren't seeing as many, as many incidental tumors, uh, it was different. But nowadays, uh, so many incidental tumors, and we know that 
uh, when we do surgery on these patients, you know, maybe 20, 25% of them may have benign masses uh, and then, you know, a non-biopsy cohort. So I think it's important uh, to make sure that you're giving the patient all the information they can and doing the, the right procedure for the right patient or the right management strategy would be a better way of saying it. So Noah, so the, the literature I quote my patients is, um, you know, when you have a mass under four centimeters, maybe under three centimeters, by CT or MRI criteria of a solid enhancing renal mass, the malignancy rate on those is roughly between 65 and 75%, depending upon the series. And right. the small, smaller they are, the less malignant they are, the bigger they are, the more you know, the tendency is to malignancy. So if what is your biopsy rate as far as uh, positive? In other words, in your co in your series or in your cohort of patients you biopsy, <clears throat> how many patients do you have to biopsy to get a malignant uh, a pathology report? Um, well, the majority of the the bio, I mean, it, it's a hard question because the majority of patients are going to have a positive. You know, you're going to have cancer because we know seventy five, let's say roughly seventy five percent will be cancerous. So what we're trying to do is differentiate which patients can uh, have a, a low malignant potential tumor like a papillary type one or a chromophobe and which have a high malignant potential tumor. And I, I realize that uh, it's difficult sometimes to do uh, firming grading on some of these uh, biopsy specimens, uh, but we have pathologists that are, are pretty darn good and can at least tell us if it's a, a bad looking tumor or not. Um, so I think as that information becomes valuable to the patient and then for the, let's say 20% that we can, uh, we can tell them, well, you have a benign mass, uh, we're going to follow this. Uh, I think that's also, it's also valuable. Um, it, a lot of, uh, pathologists might hedge on oncocytoma, oncocytic cells cannot rule out chromophobe, but our, our uh, pathologists have been pretty good at, at uh, solidly predicting who has uh, oncocytoma. So we feel pretty confident when they tell us it's a benign mass that uh, we will, uh, we will uh, definitely educate the patient uh, towards an active surveillance uh, management strategy. So, so you kind of stole my thunder a little bit by the, by the question of, you know, what do you do with an oncocytic neoplasm of unknown malignant potential, which is what we see uh, oftentimes yeah, it does go down that road of oncocytoma, chromophobe, <clears throat> maybe even some papillary tumors could, could even look a little bit like like those. Um, how do you how do you kind of rationalize your treatment plan when you get that back on a pathology slide? Yeah, I mean, then usually if if, if it's a small mass, it's the first time we found it, and it's it's oncocytic cells. If if they can't clearly call it, you know what a uh, carcinoma, then, <clears throat> then we'll generally uh, recommend, uh, you know, active surveillance. I mean, it, it, the downside of active surveillance is if you have a, if you have a compliant patient, they're not, they're not going to get uh, a metastatic tumor. They'll be followed. You know, even if you have clear cell carcinoma, the reason we 
tell a lot of people they can go into active surveillance is because we know that it's very, very rare for someone who's compliant to have a, a metastatic lesion uh, in an active surveillance protocol. Uh, so when we talk to the patients, you know, for some patients, active surveillance just isn't right. Either they, they have a, a cancer phobia, or they have had a bad family experience, or um, or they just they don't have the uh, the means to to go through a, a long process. For younger people, of course, uh, active surveillance is is rarely a a feasible choice. So, um, but most of our patients with incidental masses tend to be you know over sixty years old, and uh, uh, you know here. Uh, at UVA, we have a lot of comorbidities. So, you know, often active surveillance is a, is a good management strategy for a lot of these patients. Is there a size cutoff that you guys won't biopsy? I, I know we're talking about small renal masses and kind yeah. of, I think the literature definition would put that at four centimeters or below. If you have a five or six centimeter tumor, does that prevent you from biopsy or do you pretty much uh, are more aggressive at those? The biopsy can still help you because there are oncocytomas that are five, six, seven centimeters. We don't use exclusively biopsy information, but we definitely use it to strongly help us inform our decisions. So if we have a mass that's you know, the oncocytic cells of unknown, you know, potential, and it keeps growing, then you, a lot of times we'll have to recommend uh, going ahead with uh, treatment on those patients. So I think biopsy is, is useful. Uh, you know, as you get into very large tumors, I, I think it becomes moot, but, you know, even up to seven centimeters where you're still at the, you know, in the T1 range, I, I think it can be helpful. And uh, you mentioned you do a lot of ablation at your institution. Do you have data to look at your final pathology of extirpation patients with the biopsy versus, uh, because ablation, you're not going to get any more biopsy specimen, presumably. Um, you do, you know, three or four biopsies and more tissue at the time of ablation. But yeah. do you have any data at your, at your location where, you know, you can compare the extirpative results with the biopsy and see some correlation? We do a lot of work on looking at our ablation patients and how are they faring compared to our, uh, you know, our surgical, you know, traditional surgery, whether it's partial or nephrectomy. And we do really well. And I think the reason we do so much biopsy also is because we do so much ablation and we feel strongly we have got to get tissue before we do an ablation. Some people will do uh, try and get the tissue at the time of the ablation, but I, I, again, I like to know ahead of time, are we working on a, a malignant tumor or is this some sort of benign tumor? So we'll, we'll generally tend to uh, get a biopsy weeks ahead of time before we do an ablation. And there's also a technical reason, which is if you have a hematoma at the time of the biopsy, it can really obscure the uh, the imaging and make it much harder to do a, a good ablation. So uh, the, we have a couple of reasons for, for getting the, the biopsies ahead of time, but it, it's uh, the fact that we do so much ablation that uh, causes us to, to do a lot of biopsy. In terms of results, our ablation results are great. I mean, they're equivalent to our, uh, cure rates for our partial nephrectomy patients right now. We use a exclusively microwave ablation. I've used RFA and cryo in the past. 
I, I don't think anything, in my opinion, compares to microwave, both in, in terms of logistics, ease of use, but also in results. It's just been terrific. We uh, have a paper coming out soon where we're looking at uh, at lesions for uh, up to four centimeters. Uh, the guidelines uh, pretty much limit you to three centimeter tumors or less for ablation, but we feel strongly that four centimeters is well within the ablation zone. And uh, we, we have quite a few patients that have done very well with that. So it's over 90% success rate for ablation. Occasionally, we will have a, a patient that has to come back for a second ablation, but it, it, that just increases the, the success rate. And a lot of these patients are in their 60s and 70s. So generally, if you, uh, if you treat them, you're just you're not going to see a uh, a recurrence, and uh, you can make the argument that well, most of these are low grade tumors, uh, and you know you wouldn't see a recurrence anyway, even if you had uh, even if you had done surveillance. So there there is a lot of ways of of looking at it, uh, but you know again we're looking our model is a patient education, shared decision-making, and we let the patient sort of drive the boat there. So we published a paper a long time ago, probably 2002 or three, looking mm -hmm. at our biopsy data prior to ablation, and we were shocked at the number of high-grade tumors that we found just on biopsy. Mm -hmm. We found a 25 to 30% rate of grade three or four biopsies on these small masses. So you know, I think, you know, you're right. I think we, we tend to go about these small masses as, well, no matter what we do to them, they're going to do fine. But I have to say that I've been pretty shocked at our partial data, uh, looking at our partials for these small masses. Uh, it's really amazing how many are, are not grade one or two. I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you. It's kind of off the subject a little bit. Have you noticed an increase in the diagnosis of a fat poor angiomyolipoma? Kind of confusing the CT and MRI evidence that you might be wooed into some other malignant lesion. Uh, obviously, if you get a biopsy on it, it will show the components of the AML, but uh -huh. seen an increased instance of that or not? I, I haven't really seen that myself. We'll get radiologists who will put that in their, in their differential diagnosis or something, but I haven't seen a, a, an increased incidence, uh, you know, on pathology of, of fat poor AML. Just curious if you, if you had that, I, I do think there are regional differences of, you know, kind of epidemiological differences in, in the pathogenesis of these tumors too. Uh, it is pretty interesting to talk to people around the country and the world as to what they get on partials and, and biopsies and such. And it's a pretty wide range of, of answers that you get. So uh, maybe let's close out with um, the topic of complications. Um, uh -huh. At your institution, I presume, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I presume your radiologists biopsy them. Do they admit them and observe them or do you admit them? And then what do you quote your patients as far as, I presume bleeding is probably the highest complication or at least the most dreaded one. What do you talk to them about seeding? What do you talk to them about other solid organ injury? Do they inject saline to move the bowel over? Kind of go over some of the complications for our listeners. Uh -huh. Yeah, so we have very low complication rate from the from the uh, biopsies. Uh, our radiolo 
I know some places have the urologists do it. And I think that's great. If you have the, uh, the ability to do it in your clinic, that is terrific. But uh, we have a great relationship with our radiologist and they have uh, the facility to uh, do uh, a long post biopsy observation period that we don't really have. So uh, we tend to have them do everything. We would quote very low, significant hematoma rate. It probably, if you looked at it closely, most people get a small hematoma. But when it comes down to significant hematomas that uh, require further further medical care, uh, it's it's super rare. Uh, we've had no transfusions, but we've had some patients with a, a large hematoma that has really delayed their ablation procedure because we had to wait for the hematoma to resolve for a while. So that's definitely the, the most common. I guess you could think about an AVM, you know, forming from the biopsy doesn't tend to be a, a big issue for us, but it's certainly out there in the literature. Track seating. I used to tell people it never happened, but a few weeks ago, we had a guy who uh, came back with a a very unusual tumor. The radiologist went transhepatically for the biopsy. And even though they use a sheath for their uh, for their biopsies, which we were hoping would keep track seating down, patient came back with a, a recurrence uh, in the liver from the transhepatic uh, biopsy. So I've, we've never seen any other track seating other than that one, but uh, it's obviously a, a terrible complication. I don't really see that much other downside to the biopsy. I think if you look at biopsy and any other tumor, always have to accept some complications, but it's it's really a pretty safe procedure. There are definitely ways that we're looking at to decrease the, our biopsy rate though. There's some new evidence out of University of Texas Southwest showing there may be a, a way of using uh, MRI data to create a, a score for the uh, tumor and to see if you can uh, more accurately predict who's got uh, clear cell, if we can uh, better predict who's got oncocytoma so we can avoid uh, biopsy in certain cases. I think it's still a ways off from relying on strictly, but certainly something to add to our armamentarium in the, the pre-op process. Well, Noah, we, uh, again, we appreciate your expertise and your time. And uh, for our listeners, uh, I hope you take some of what he said to uh, be pro-biopsy and, and kind of into your uh, practice and how it might benefit your patients. Uh, so on behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in, and uh, we look forward to the next broadcast. Uh, Dr. Shankman, thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Brad, for having me. Thank you.